The horses are at the gate. And they're off! Welcome to Winning Ponies. With a weekend coming up, this is the spot to be for news, handicapping, and spotlights featuring the winners behind horse racing today. Now, here's your host, John Engelhart, racing's regular guy. Okay, thanks for joining us. Well, not broadcasting from the uh, Johnston Farm this week, so things should go a little bit smoother without uh, loose horses and uh, dogs going crazy. Hi, everybody. I'm John Engelhart, and I appreciate you joining us. And I think you're going to like both of our guests. Uh, Both have been on before, though. Eric Mitchell from the Blood Horse has not been on with us for quite a while. And I had to do some business with him this week. And I said, hey, Eric, how about joining us? Uh, You know, we're right in the midst of a lot of the sales action down in Kentucky, uh, particularly kind of mixed sale right now, some top broodmares in full to top stallions. And so uh, we're going to kind of see who's hot and who's not. And also with Eric, um, we want to talk to him about a study that uh, the rise in inbreeding in the thoroughbred breed and the effects that it's had. I mean, uh, you, you think about uh, the horses now that are breeding well over uh, 100 uh, mares. Now, the first stallions, you got to go back to uh, Secreto in 1987 and Alidar in 1991. They were the first to cover over 100. And uh, so now, uh, let's see if I've got the exact number. I'm sure it's in this article. But uh, there's uh, quite a few stallions that are breeding over 100 mares. And we'll see what uh, traits are being passed along and what the uh, impact of the inbreeding will be, but basically I want to talk to him about the sales and, of course, uh, the 2019 leading sires. Uh, when I when I look at the list of the top four, all of them stand for 150000 or more. Into Mischief at Spendthrift Farm, 150000 He's right now is the 2019 leading sire. Uh, then it is Tappet. He's standing for 225. Now these are 2019 fees. 225. Then also at 150,000 Quality Road. I know his cost just went up, but uh, last year he stood for 150,000. And I think the hottest of the hot right now, though he's number four in the standings, Curlin has really taken off, and I think he's doing great at the sales. But we'll be talking to uh, Eric Mitchell. He's the uh, expert and the writer on uh, bloodlines for the blood horse, so we'll uh, key in on him. And then uh, my friend Bob Railbird-Roberts. We get him on the show every couple of months, and Bob has a book coming out, and I just got it like two days ago, and I haven't had the chance to get through the whole thing. But I swear, uh, the stories and the colorful writing of uh, Bob Roberts is just fantastic. It's called The Writings of a Railbird. We'll tell you how to get a hold of it. Right now, it's just out in ebook uh, fashion. Uh, but uh, I'm convincing them to try to go to hardcover. I really think with the characters and the people that Bob is writing about in this book would make for some great photos 
or examples from the racing form of the things that he uh, dredged up. Uh, but you you will laugh and you will cry. This is a great book. Uh, but basically, it, it's an as- assembly of uh, so many of his columns that he has written over the past 40 years. Obviously, though, your editors you know, only give you so much ink. So there's more to a lot of these stories. So I'm going to pick out a couple of the ones that I enjoyed uh, the most. And uh, we'll be talking to Bob Railbird Roberts about that. Now, uh, I just read a story just came out five o'clock today that Eric Mitchell uh, did put out. And that's American Pharaoh's fee for this year is set at 175000 Now, they are, remember it was two. 2015 that he won the triple crown he's expected to be the leading freshman sire i think that's fantastic when somebody who put their performance out there on the track was able to transfer it to the breeding shed as you know that didn't happen to one of the greatest horses of all time uh secretariat though he did become a leading broodmare sire uh just uh, none of his sons could come close to what he did but Hard to expect when you're the first Triple Crown winner in about 27 years. But uh, Ashford Stud did say that he's going to stand uh, for 175000 And uh, so the Breeders' Cup produced strong results for American Pharaoh. Uh, he was represented by the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf Sprint winner, Four Wheel Drive, and Sweet Melania, who was third in the Breeders' Cup Phillies turf, of course, uh, that being a grade one turf race. So uh, just out of his first crop, he's had four black type winners, three of them in group or graded wins. Uh, That's pretty impressive for your first crop. Of course, you can bet he was getting some of the best of the best. Now, he's being respected, and he's obviously throwing good-looking horses because at auction, American Pharaoh's 2019 yearlings average 407,169. Now, he did have that uh, filly out of Leslie's Lady, uh, $8.2 There's some other factors that went in there besides the good looks of this filly. She's a half-sister to leading sire into mischief and multiple champion Beholder. And we're going to get to uh, some plans for Beholder here in in just a minute or two. Uh, Beholder, uh, who uh, currently lives at Spendthrift Farm, will be bred to a young Spendthrift Stallion next year, Bolt the Oro, who stands for, shall I say, only $25,000. But Beholder's going to go to him in 2020. So uh, that uh, was announced uh, just uh, a day or so again. Uh, Now, Beholder, she's in fold a warfront, and she's going to have an early date. She's going to have a January full. She's already had two other foals, a yearling colt by Uncle Mo named QB1, and a weanling filly by Curlin. Now, Beholder, one of the greatest of our generation, she retired in 2016 with 18 wins from 26 starts, earnings of $6.1 million. She won Eclipse Awards as the outstanding two-year-old filly, three-year-old filly, and two times, 2015 and 2016, Beholder was the older mare. I mean, she had three triple crown wins, uh, the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies, the Breeders' Cup 
distaff, and of course, who could forget the Longines distaff over the brilliant songbird and her final start before she was retired uh, to Spendthrift. Uh, she also beat the boys in the uh, TVG Pacific Classic Stakes. So uh, there's some great uh, images of her by Ann Eberhardt if you get a chance to check them out, one of my favorite uh, uh, photographers. And uh, so Bolt the Oro's next uh, in her book, uh, he covered, check this out, 214 mares in his first book. And let me tell you, he's firing bullets 94% in full rate. So you're going to see a lot of Bolt Dioros uh, on the track here in a couple of years. Uh, he is a, a son of uh, Medaglia Dioro and was the only two-year-old colt to 2017 to win multiple grade one races. So uh, 25000 I guess, down in the Lexington area, uh, that's kind of a bargain deal, some people m- might say. Uh, so uh, we will uh, see what happens down the road, but beholder, what a great, great mare. Well, uh, let's see, in some jockey news, uh, jockey Martin Garcia is going to shift his tack. Uh, he's going to start out, I do believe, at the Turfway meet, and uh, so he's he's leaving the, the confines of California, and uh, he's now 35 years old, and is, he's going to ride through Del Mar, and then starting to go to uh, Churchill Downs, and Turfway Park, from what I understand, uh, kind of interesting. I, he better uh, remember to bring his warm clothes. He's used to riding out in uh, in California, where it's much, much uh, warmer. But uh, he and Bob Baffert had a bit of a breakup. I believe he hasn't ridden a horse for Baffert since August 21st. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, how he fares here. Let's see, we've got some other info on him that uh, he, uh, let's see, Marty McGee wrote a thing on him and said uh, that his momentum has been sagging in recent years, and he was backed by Hall of Famer Bob Baffert, but like I said, he has not ridden for him since August. Uh, who can forget his most lucrative victory for Baffert on Bayern in the $5 million Breeders' Cup Classic uh, back in 2014 at Santa Anita. He has won four Breeders' Cup races, so uh, good luck to Martin Garcia. Um, let's see, other up-and-coming news. I was looking for, I got a nice uh, uh, email from my uh, buddy, Ed Meyer, who's doing very well these days, for those of you that asked. Um, but uh, there's kind of thin on the stakes races, which is why we're just going to have two guests and and not a guest handicapper uh, this evening. And uh, looking up here uh, on the 16th, which is Saturday, uh, we do have uh, a grade three at Churchill. It's the River City Handicap, 125 uh, there, and then there's a $100,000 uh, uh, stake at Aqueduct in the key sense. Uh, not too much on Sunday at Aqueduct. The notebook stakes a hundred grander. So as you know, once we get past uh, the Breeders' Cup races, things get a tad thin on the racing front. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, that's uh, s- some look at the national news. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, one of the leading bloodlines writers in the world, Eric Mitchell, is going to be with us. I'm John Engelhart, and you're listening to Winning Ponies. <laughs> 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. And they're off. What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with WinningPonies.com, the home of the easy win form. The most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry. Let WinningPonies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full field with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Engelhart. Got a tip for us? Need a tip from us? If you want to talk with John or his guests, the phone lines are now open toll-free at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or you can send an email to show at winningponies.com. Now, back to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. All right, I teased him at the uh, top of the show here, Eric Mitchell. And, Eric, I also told you that my entire script was wiped out. So, uh, first of all, welcome back to Winning Ponies. I'm glad you can make it this evening. Thank you, John. It's good to, always good to be here. Uh, and uh, sorry about your, your computer mishap there. That's, uh, <laughs> that's aggravating, to be sure. Yes, but, well. Uh, I, I'm sure you can wing it. I already did. Now, now it's going to be real easy because I've got I've got uh, you with me. But what I had in that script was uh, your background and your bio. So now, rather than me uh, have to say it, why don't you give our audience a little bit of a taste of uh, where you came from, how you got involved with thoroughbred racing, and kind of the different jobs you had that landed you in Lexington. Uh, okay, I'll, uh, I'll try and keep this uh, short and sweet. Um, I have an animal science degree from Texas A&M. Uh, I, I did most of my growing up in Houston and had the intent when I went off to college of getting into vet school and quickly realized I was not going to have a GPA that was going to be anywhere near enough required to get me into vet school. So I, I, I moved laterally and I went the production agriculture route and uh, learned everything I could uh, while I was in school because I don't, my, my family is not involved in horses. I don't come from a horse background, um, but I've always been fascinated by the animal and, and, and just knew that in some way I wanted to be uh, involved in, in some way, shape, or form. And, then, and for a kid growing up in suburban Houston, um, you know, that takes a little bit of figuring out. So, uh, so I, I worked at the horse center at A&M. I was a member of their horse judging team and, 
and I just did everything I could to learn as much as I could. And so um, I eventually wound up um, getting into the thoroughbred side in Ocala. And a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Bill Day, he's a, he's a, now he's a professor, so he's Dr. Bill Day. But his family uh, ran a thoroughbred farm in, in Texas, and they're the ones that suggested I go to Ocala. And I worked for a farm there, Dove Creek Farm, managed that farm for a while, and then uh, the owner of that farm, uh, it was it was. I, you know, I got there in 86, right when the whole industry was starting to collapse because of the tax changes. And uh, so in that transition, um, the owner of that farm decided that he was going to move on and, and, and focus more on training. And I transitioned actually into the newspaper business and started helping uh, cover the the. Ocala thoroughbred industry for the Star Banner there and did that for uh, a long time, 12 years perhaps. Um, met my wife there. We did some moving around and through different moves that we made, we wound up in Lexington where I took a job with the Blood Horse 20 years ago as of October and wow. uh, started off as a business writer there. Uh, worked as research director there, uh, eventually uh, moved my way up to, to be the editorial director there uh, for several years. And then uh, as we were doing uh, transition when the, when the blood horse got sold, uh, we really didn't, we, we were trying to find someone who could really grab the, the blood stock, the stallion farm and farm beat and, uh, you know, we made a decision that, that, you know, because of the experience I had, that was really something that I was, that was well suited to do. And, Absolutely. you know, at that time, Ron Mitchell moved over to be sales editor. So he was sales, ed- you know, sales editor. I, I took over the bloodstock side of it. And, um, so that's, that's how I wound up where I am here. So it's, uh, it's been a long and twisting route, but uh, so now, so now it's uh, it's all about uh, watching watching trends in, in breeding and book size and and, uh, and fairly early on when I was with Blood Horse, I got involved in the Blood Horse Market Watch, which you may be familiar with, and yes. you know, so that's a lot of statistics and analysis, and I, and I like looking at trends and the and the numbers, and that that really interests me. So it's a good it's a good uh, blending of the of the two things, the bloodstock and also the analysis side of it. Well, I'm, I'm going to bring up a name of a guy that uh, I'm sure in your many years and your interest in breeding, uh, you, you are aware of and have read, and that's Leon Rasmussen. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go back oh 20 years ago. Obviously uh, Leon has uh, left us as has Jack Work, uh, though their studies continue and actually their business continues with other people leading it. But uh, I, I'm referencing this back to an article you wrote September 21st for the Blood Horse called "Study Connects Rise in Inbreeding to Larger Books." But when I interviewed uh, Mr. Rasmussen, he explained to me that. At least in in his 
feelings that the breed goes through uh, situations where what like he said and I remember this distinctly that it breathes in and it breathes out uh, breeding mm-hmm. breathing in is if kind of the inbreeding because what you're trying to look for is the best traits in a horse and see if you can duplicate it perhaps through the dam and the sire and then finally breathing out where there comes a time when you have to get away from that and perhaps uh, do what we call an outcrossing where you're breeding horses to mares that don't have similar parents and that it kind of invigorates uh, the breed again. I, I'll never forget those words because I remember him mm-hmm. emphasizing. I was doing a television piece and how he was, you know, emphasizing in and out and in and out. Mm-hmm. Are we? Are we going too much in right now? I mean, I just read the story that the Blood Horse put out about uh, Beholder, and she's going to be bred to Bolt Oro. And in that article, it said that he covered 214 mares. I'll tell you what, he's firing mm-hmm. bullets 94% in full rate. But nonetheless, um, I, I, I want to get your, your, your read on this, Eric Mitchell. I, I just feel that it's, it's unhealthy to have – a small amount, albeit quality studs, uh, well, we don't know. Some are too young to have foals uh, at the races, um, all breeding so many mares because there's just so many mares, where, but a stud, obviously, like Bolt Oro, can cover 214 mares. What's your read on this for somebody that kind of has an animal husbandry background? Yeah, you know this is it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting question and and I had a long and well not I shouldn't say long but a very interesting conversation with Ernie Bailey over at the Gluck Center because um, these guys really understand the genetics and and what happens and he you know he makes a very valid point that when you are involved in breeding purebred animals, then inbreeding and line breeding is what you do. You identify those traits that are most favorable that you want, and then you try and concentrate those within the genetics. And he said, if you're not doing that, then you're not doing what you're supposed to do as a breeder, which I get completely. And, you know, his, his point is also you know, that works great as long as you're concentrating those positive traits. You know, the risk is if you have a mutation or a recessive trait or something that is in a combination that shows up, that becomes detrimental. And I know the quarter horse industry went through this many years ago. And, and, and Is that when every struggled. horse was, had the name Cash in it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The Cash gene was, uh, was prolific. Um, but, you know, so you, you do. You, you, run a, you have that risk there where if that trait happens to, you know, is associated with a, a pool of horses and you're breeding most of your horses to them – and that trait works its way into the gene pool or, you know, becomes incorporated, then, then it becomes a problem. You know, so, um, you know, there's, there's and, and this is also, it's a, there's an economic component to this and there's, an, and there's a genetic component to this. And, and, and yes, it's, it's not in the, in the, in the longest term health of the breed, 
to, to have a narrow, 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 narrow gene pool. And, and you do run that risk with the volume of horses we're breeding nowadays. But you can talk back to the days when Bold Ruler was dominant, and it seemed like, you know, everybody wanted Bold Ruler or Sons of Bold Ruler. And, and you know, so to, 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 to Mr. Rasmussen's point, yeah, there seems to be these cycles, you know, heavy concentrated inbreeding, and then they, and maybe there's periods of, of outcrossing. And so, you know, now we've got, you know, Northern Dancer, Mr. Prospector everywhere. And now we have the horses that are breeding hundreds and hundreds and, uh, you know, up to 200 mares. Is that good? You know, I, in the long term, it's probably not good. Um, and I understand the economic side of it. And, and, you know, so I understand the free market side of it. And I understand, you know, completely get that argument that we should let the market take care of itself. But we do have a responsibility from an animal husbandry standpoint. And for the standpoint of, of breeders, you know, and I'll go, I'm going to, you know, I hate to keep switching back and forth, but, you, you know, you look at the, the economic side of it, it's really in the breeder's best interest not to be one of 200 and, you know, 200 foals. You know, you're much better off if you're one of 140, you know, and we've seen how polarized the commercial market has, has gotten to be. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, do, I do wonder, you know, why a breeder chooses to do that. I understand the marketability of a stallion and, and the attractiveness in the commercial market. Um, but they're taking on even more risk than is already inherent in breeding thoroughbreds when you're one of 200 versus one of 140, you know, because then you really need to have that top 1% of that full crop in order to get the return that you want to get out of the commercial market. And otherwise you're taking on more risk. So, uh, you know, is that going to affect stud fees? Probably, you know, you, you lower the amount of mares a stallion can breed, then that's probably going to increase his fee. Um, and, and, but, you know, then, then you let the free market kind of work its way out, you know, it work its influence on what those fees are and how that, those prices play out in the commercial market. So, you know, so in the long term health of the breed, I don't think this is necessarily a bad move. Uh, I, I, it, it affects a relatively small percentage of horses would some of those mares turn around and help support other horses um, that are good quality horses that maybe are in their third or fourth year and probably need a few more mares uh, to help uh, uh, beef up their foal crops? You know, if that were to happen, that would be great. Um, so, uh, so that's kind of where I where I land with it. All right, we're talking with Eric Mitchell from the Blood Horse. I got a, just a couple minutes left, but let's talk about what's going on in Lexington right now. We we've had a bevy of sales uh, in, in in the the last month and a half. Um, it lo- looks like Curlin is really putting his stamp on on the sales ring. Yeah, no, no, no question. And and actually, Curlin has just had a phenomenal year. Um, not just in the fall sales, but also through the 
the yearling sales. Uh, he has is really he he's been he's been the hot horse, uh, and justifiably so. Um, so you know he he he's right there uh, at at or near the top of the sire list. Well, you not at, but uh, he's he's always. Uh, ranks very very high. He's uh, well. He's second behind into mischief right now. Um, but you know, uh, eleven graded stakes winners. You know, so far this year, which is uh, which is at the top. You know, so he's tied with Tappet uh, with eleven graded stakes winners this year, and that justifies the kind of prices that we've seen. So, yeah, yeah, very very high. Uh, Leading uh, leading the Keeneland sale right now among weanlings um, by average as well four hundred ninety three thousand four hundred ninety three thousand seven hundred and fifty is his average for weanlings so that's uh, that's remarkably strong. Absolutely. I mean, especially since some of these uh, horses will come back as a yearling, who knows what they'll bring. But it, but it, mm-hmm. it is interesting to uh, – I, I really love it when you do see champions like Curl and, and American Pharaoh prove themselves in the breeding shed. But on the other hand, if they're breeding 200 mares and you know that those are some of the best mares out there, uh, I got a feeling that uh, – they, they certainly increase their odds of throwing a good horse, not only because of their ability, but you're breeding the best of the best when you start talking about tappets and curlins. Yeah, yeah, no question, no question about it. Um, and you, and you know, you make a valid point. You know, it, it does help on the racing side. You know, you, if you have more foals, you have more opportunity. I don't think anyone's going to argue that point. Um, but you have to you have to balance that with with what the commercial breeders uh, need as well. Well, Eric Mitchell, I see my uh, producers banging on the window, telling me we got to go sell some uh, advertising. But I, I do appreciate you coming on. I really enjoy your your articles. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, uh, you're being joined by uh, my friends now, uh, Byron King and Jay Hovday, uh, strengthening mm-hmm. uh, the, the the line up there at the Blood Horse. So uh, I've got uh, about uh, 40 years of your magazines stashed in my. <laughs> stashed in my basement though my wife would like to see them tossed out i can't let them go but you do an excellent job i appreciate it and i really thank you for joining us here on winning ponies hey great talking with you again john and uh always enjoy the show and uh thank you very much all right well uh that was uh, eric mitchell we're going to take a little bit of a break here and we come back we're going to talk to uh, one of north america's leading authors or, or no i should say most recent authors and that's one bob railbird roberts you're listening to winning ponies <laughs> The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com And they're off! What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with WinningPonies.com, the home of the easy win form. The most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry. Let WinningPonies.com make some money for you. 
pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full fields with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Engelhart. Got a tip for us? Need a tip from us? If you want to talk with John or his guests, the phone lines are now open toll-free at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or you can send an email to show at winningponies.com. Now, back to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. All right, and with me now, the author of Writings of a Railbird, Bob Railbird Roberts. Uh, he's got a new ebook out, but I'm really trying to push him to get this into hardcover because it <laughs> is such an enjoyable read. And you got to read the prologue to find out where Bob really came from. I know I do brief introductions uh, here on the show over the years that Bob's been on with us, but it's it's really kind of fun to to delve into all the different jobs he's had and the fact that uh, he started out, I believe, at his high school. Uh, uh, newspaper bob roberts welcome to the show thanks john how are you doing i'm doing great but like i said i hardly got any work done because you sent me this book (laughs) and i've been going through it today and it is just fantastic uh gee john i've been at it for 50 years now I know, the Willowick Junior High School, June 5th, 1963. <laughs> Whose birthday is that? Mine. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God, yeah. I was born the last great year Cleveland had, 1948. The Browns won the NFL title. The Indians won the World Series. The, you know, the Cleveland Barons won the hockey title. And Citation won the Triple Crown. Oh, wow. That is fantastic. <laughs> well, uh <laughs> Eddie, I, you know, I normally have you on here as a handicapper, but uh, uh, tonight I'm going to have you on a, a, as an author. And uh, let me get my notes because I've been having so much fun uh, reading this. <laughs> all right. Uh, for, I appreciate for, it, that. It, it, I, you know, I'm not blowing smoke, buddy. You know that. If anything, I'd bust your chops. No. But, uh, you know, when I, when I look at the take, it's so readable. I mean, this is one of those books I love because I'm, I'm not mm. going through, you know, War and Peace. This is one you could read, put down, <laughs> read, put down, read, put down. And, yeah. and, and you, you hit everybody on here. But I, and again, I've only just scratched the surface. I can't wait to get through it all because I've just been jumping yeah. around. I see all these different stories. It's like, oh, right. I got to check this out. Goodbye, Beulah. That's got to be about Beulah Park, you know. Oh, um, yeah. Memories in Ohio. The track keeps calling them back off to the races. All right. Now, my favorite, Bob, and I'll just hit you with this, uh, is uh, you, you go to page 19 and later. Don't let me get away without telling people how they can get this and the fact that you're donating okay. Part of me at the charity is I, you. This was very. I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Charles Bukowski. 
No. Uh, you're not? Oh, well, you still Charles Bukowski. Oh. Yes. He was kind of a beat generation writer, but he was a racetracker. Oh. Uh, but most oh. of the stuff's about drinking and getting laid. But aside from that, <laughs> when, when he wasn't drinking and getting laid, he was at the racetrack. And so he has a lot of different <laughs> stories about that. And your story, Life and Death at Waterford Park, Sounds like oh. you stole a page out of Charles Bukowski. It is fantastic. You wrote this article. It was one of the more lengthy ones in your book for Pittsburgh Well, you Magazine. know what that's from, John? Yeah. That is from, uh, I used to go to Waterford Park and do handicapping seminars. Like, I do, like, eight Friday nights in a row, like, two or three times a year. And I would stay overnight at the hotel on the grounds there, and I would get to meet all the people who lived and worked there. They all also lived in a trailer park right above the track. So I kept throwing these stories into a, into a shoebox, and when I had enough of them, I put that together, and I sold it to Pittsburgh Magazine. That's where it appeared, in Pittsburgh Magazine. And it won the Golden Quill Award. I was so stupid, I didn't go to the banquet. It won for the best feature writing in western Pennsylvania. Hey, Bob, uh, try to stand still because you're kind of going in and out on us a, a, a little bit. I know oh, you're sorry. an excitable boy. Now, I, I want to read one paragraph, which I don't know if it could be written today. From Life and Death at Waterford Park, okay? This is, a, it starts with a story about a limo pulling up the finish line and a woman in a black mm. dress coming out and taking a small box and spreading it across the finish line. Obviously, her husband's ashes. Uh, but uh, listen to this, uh, okay? So goes life and obviously death. At Waterford Park, one of the zaniest thoroughbred playpens. While the majority of its horse colony is just one bad step away from becoming from becoming a can of Alpo, its collection of humans, <laughs> those who come to financially tackle, train, or tout the ponies are in a class by themselves. What degree of class hasn't been and may never be determined. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the track that ran 300 times a year, and, and they run for claiming prices of $1,500. It's not that bad now, but it was uh, year-round horse racing in the panhandle of West Virginia, about 45 minutes south of Youngstown, and maybe an hour and a half drive from Cleveland. So that was the winter playground for Cleveland horse players before the advent of full card simulcasting. It was the place to be in the wintertime. And it's only like uh, 40 minutes from Pittsburgh. So it's a pretty good location for a racetrack. Well, here's where it becomes very Bukowski-esque. And that <laughs> is when you start talking about the different bars around there and yeah. people that gave uh, venereal diseases to people and That's jockeys that dropped from out of the sky in a plane crash yeah. when trying to land in the infield. <laughs> Just give us a thumbnail sketch of this story if you remember it, because oh it's God. etched in my mind now. Yeah, well, that was uh, that, well, that's, a, that's a few years ago, yeah. Some girl, some cocktail waitress says, I got it from that guy. He, he got it from that exercise girl. She got it from that front desk book at the hotel. Oh, it is just, it was, it's such a, 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 a collage of characters down there. It's just, there was a one-armed jockey agent who used to make uh, the best chicken cacciatore in the world. I just had a ball going down there. It was just like, it was like being in another world. It's just another world. Yeah, I enjoyed writing Edmund. You know, what, can I tell you what my favorite article was? No, please do. It's one of the shortest. It's one of the shortest ones in there. I got a call from uh, you know who Bill Couch is. He was the racing secretary at Thistledown. Now he I was just with. Built I was there. with him on Wednesday. 
Okay, in 1987, he was calling shots for the racing form at Erie Downs in Pennsylvania. It was called Commodore Downs, and then it got renamed Erie Downs, and it was soon to go out of business. So they were cutting all the corners they could cut. I think there was like two weeks left in the meet, and the washer and dryer broke in the jocks room. And those guys were riding in soiled britches and silks for a week. And they told the, the, uh, the clerk of scales or the, uh, the silks guy, you know what, this stuff isn't done tomorrow. We're not riding. My phone ringing was Bill Couch. He says, they just called off the racing because of dirty laundry. The jocks refused <laughs> to ride. And my lead was, my lead was, only the washer and dryers were racing yesterday. Here we go. Because they got a guy to fix them. That's fast, but those guys refuse to ride. Un- unbelievable. Well, um, yeah. Let's see. There was also a story I like because I, I knew the cast of characters in there uh, to a certain extent because I, I worked for them. And uh, one I knew years and years ago, I was at uh, the Ohio horse sale and I got introduced to Perry Bailey. And we get talking. Oh. We're, having couple, we're, we're, we're having a couple of beers. And so Perry Bailey goes, so uh, you, you know, by, by the, that was when I was only part-time at River Downs. He says, you're looking for a job in the winter. I said, yeah. He said, well, how'd you like to be the PR guy at the fairgrounds? I said, I'd love it. And he goes, well, here, give me a minute. Mm-hmm. And he went over to a thing called a phone booth. Most people wouldn't know what that was now. And uh, he's on the phone <laughs> for about five minutes, and he waves me over, and he goes, hey, Vicky." Here's your next publicity director, and he hands the phone to me. I'm thinking it's the beer talking, right? So I talked to Vicki yeah. uh, Bailey. Uh, she was Louis Roussel's girlfriend. And next thing I know, I got I got round-trip tickets to New Orleans waiting for me to come down and interview. And so meanwhile, I got to know Perry Bailey. He was telling me stories about uh, when uh, him, he used to steal Jack Van Berg's bike and repaint it and sell it back to Van Berg. I mean, the stories that Perry Bailey had. Of course, you kind of, you know, spun him and Vicky into the story about the the Preakness Stakes uh, uh, won by Risen Star. Risen Star. Right. And that, well, you're picking out the, you're going to go on it, buddy, because believe it or not, that story won. The best, the best Preakness story that year. I was on the uh, alibi breakfast the next year. That one for the best Preakness story. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Bailey was a regular at Thistledown. Yeah, he was a regular at Thistledown all those years. So he was—he's a character in his own right. He was. He oh, he is. Card in his pocket. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, very uh, interesting. Uh, uh, we, yeah, I was talking to you earlier today. I don't know if people know about. Uh, how hard it could be to be a mutual clerk when customers come up to the counter to uh, make their bets. And oh, uh, I, go I ahead, share this about, because yeah. it was I did yeah. read I, I, I did read that chapter about. <laughs> go ahead, so and, mutual, tell our audience yeah. about it. Yeah, I went to the mutual clerks at Thistledown in Northville. And I says, I know you got a tough job, and a lot of times there's so many tracks now that people can bet because of full card simulcasting. Could you tell me some of the butcher job they do on the names of the tracks? And I made a list of them. Here's, here's some of the leading tickets, uh, the names of tracks mispronounced by the customers. Mental Lands for Meadowlands. <laughs> Flam, Flame Broil for Flamborough. Cal Explode for Cal Expo. Rosecraft for Rosecroft. South Fork for Suffolk. Holy Days for Hollywood. Yankees for Yonkers. Either Los Alamone, Los Halitosis, or the Alamo for Los Alamitos. Albuquerque for Albuquerque, 
Foghorn for Hawthorne, Have a Pie or Apple Pie for Yavapai, <laughs> and Valley Joe for Vallejo. <laughs> and, then, and then they gave me the ultimate one. Some clerk, some customer went up to a clerk and says, give me $5 to win on the four horse in the third race at Pinocchio, meaning Pimlico. <laughs> <laughs> I like the, also, I believe it was that same chapter where the, the mutual clerk was designed the time the guy started. He was trying to get a big bed in, and he's coming up, and his pants are falling down. Yeah, he's getting closer right. and closer to the window, and finally his pants are around his ankles because she could identify the color of his boxer shorts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the kind of journalism I look for. Yeah, <laughs> I tried and, to and make guy, it fun. The guy that uh, the, it looked like he had fallen dead in the line, and everybody just politely stepped over him yeah. to make their right. bet. <laughs> right. Well, there was a, uh, there was a the, the, the daily racing form distributor in Cleveland was a place called Gun News, and it was just a few doors down from the Plain Dealer in downtown Cleveland. And I would go there in the morning sometimes, real early, because they, the forms would come in by bus or by uh, train, and they would be in the uh, racing form room at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. So I go downtown to Dunn News and, and get the forms. Well, Dunn News finally went out of business, so I run tribute to Dunn News. I was in there one day, and a guy recognized me. He was in her vein form. He goes, you're the real bird from the plane deal. I go, yes, sir, I am. He goes, you're not doing very good. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong. So I just stood there patiently and listened to the guy tell me how my handicapping was bad. And we went outside. This car was parked in front of my car. We both got in our cars. And he had like a two-by-four for a back bumper. But he was going to tell me how to handicap horses. I had no back bumper. It was a piece of wood. <laughs> and apparently someone came in there one day and robbed the place. And the guy who, uh, who ran the farms, uh, all that distributorship, always had a gun in his desk. And after the guy robbed him, he pulled a gun, and he chased the guy down the street, and the guy finally stopped. And he said, okay, okay, I'll give you the money back. And he emptied his pockets and he gave the guy from the form the money. When the guy got back and counted the money, he had three dollars more than he had started with in a drawer. He beat the robber <laughs> out of three dollars. <laughs> he ended up robbing the robber, huh? Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh boy. Well, these are the good old days, Pat, we're talking about here. Yeah. All right. Oh, now boy. I did get a chance I did get a chance to read this one, but the title sounds so good, I gotta know what the story is. Off track Eddie on the money. Oh my God, he's 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 the right off track, Eddie. He owned a power piping company in Cleveland near the Cleveland Zoo, and he loved to bet the horses. And he wanted to bet only the best. He wanted to bet stake races and grass races, and he didn't want to. He only came to Thistleton once a year on Ohio Derby Day. Otherwise, he would fly to the track where he wanted to make his bets: be it Pimlico, Aqueduct, Belmont. Hawthorne, Arlington, Gulfstream, he would fly there and come back the same day. And he got the nickname Off Track Eddie because he excelled when the track was sloppy. He would walk oh. around. You remember the old days? You remember the old days of racing for him with, with print chart books? The mud and mark. Then would be a, yes, and then there would be a year-end index for the whole year. And he would look like a huge dictionary. And he carried it under his arm, and he was very good. There was a horse. You would know this because I think this pizza company was in Cincinnati. There was a horse that raced at Churchill Downs named Buddy LaRosa. Yeah, yeah, he's and, from Cincinnati. He's still alive, making pizzas. Well, this horse excelled on off track. This is a day before cell phones and the internet. He needed to know what the track condition was at Churchill Downs 
when Buddy LaRosa was entered. So he would call the racing office. And they got a little wise to him and they said, hey, Buddy, quit calling here. Well, he knows Buddy LaRosa's in on Thursday, and he needs to know what the weather is in Louisville. He called the Louisville Weather Department <laughs> and said, hey, I'm, this is Mr. Jones from Jones at Eastman. I'm going to be moving some Ferris wheels and, and some other stuff through your town. Should I put the tarps on the uh, on the rides? Is it raining? And the guy goes, man, it's pouring down here. <laughs> 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 Look, he knew to bet Buddy LaRosa. They did. Yeah. Oh, he uh, was an incredible handicapper. Yeah. That is funny. Yeah, Buddy the Rosa, he's a Cincinnati legend. He's really big into <laughs> the boxing go. game, but he's still alive yeah. tossing pizzas. He does a lot of good charity work. Wow. Uh, that's, that, that's hilarious. Uh, we also, yeah. what, about the same time he was running, we had a, uh, there was a Pete Rose running and a Johnny Bench running. So, uh, you know, that had oh. to be early 70s. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Jimmy the Greek. You know, a lot of people are trying to figure out how he, you know, ascended to the top of the handicappers and stuff. Well, he would pay the, I guess, clubmen or whatever you called them on trains, and he'd know yeah. where they were going and they'd come back. And he'd say, you going to Detroit? Yeah. You going to St. Louis? Yeah. You know, and he'd pay these guys to bring papers to him. So he would read stories oh. and find out what the weather was like, and then, like, if a quarterback was sick or if some guy got arrested, yeah. well, you wouldn't you would know that in Zanesville, Ohio. So right. he was making right. these big bets on these teams because, you know, this is way before the Internet, and that's how he got his information was finding out what what was going yeah. on regionally because it wasn't being broadcast. We only had three TV stations, and they were sure right. as all like weren't covering rainstorm in Detroit and so he'd bet the over-under and things like that but that's how Jimmy the Greek uh, you know started out with his successful and then I guess years oh later uh, Ray Pollock became became the ghost writer for Jimmy the Greek as far as oh. horse racing was concerned yeah I didn't know that until really? I had uh, Ray on the show one hmm. time so small John Russell, uh, yeah. John, I think you know that my second favorite sport is soccer and I was lucky enough to get picked by the playing dealer to cover the World Cup of soccer in France in 1998. And when the United States got knocked out of the World Cup, the wonderful French organizing committee quit giving press passes to American reporters. So I was looking for things to write about. And I went out to, uh, on the 4th of July, I, I spent a day at uh, Normandy Beach. And I, I saw wrote a story that story about the heroes of Normandy. Yeah. And uh, they ran, that day they ran that on the front, front page of the paper. And then the soccer stuff was on the lead sport page. But I'm really, I was very proud to, and humbled to go up there and, and write that story about it. I wasn't home a week from the World Cup, and that's when the movie Saving Private Ryan came out. And the opening scene is the, the old guy walking around the cemetery. I almost fell off my chair at the theater because I had just been there a week before myself. So, and so that's I, it. I, I, saw the, I covered, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, ironically, uh, the column you wrote, The Heroes of Normandy, was published on the 4th of right. July in 1998. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I went up there. The, I was obviously there on the 3rd. I was in the day before. Yeah. But, yeah. There's even, uh, when I first went to the Cleveland Press, I had to cover pro bowling. Nobody wanted to cover pro bowling, so they gave it to me. I said, I'll find some stories to make you, you guys left a run on the lead sport page. So um, I find a story, and the photographer comes out, the, your photographer, they were not allowed down by the pin because it distracted the bowlers. So the right. photographer would get some silhouette shot from the concession stand and go back to the paper. So he comes out and goes, let me get my silhouette shot and get out of here. I go, no, go in the locker room, and I gave him two names of bowlers. I said, take close-ups of the thumb on their bowling hand. You ever see the thumb on a pro bowler? It's grotesque. All the skin's <laughs> on one side. And, yeah. King of the Uglies, and there it was on the lead sport page of the press, 
two pictures, two huge pictures of Bo and Stun. Yeah, I got around a little bit. I covered the uh, Daytona 500 one year, too, even though I didn't know where the oil goes in my car. They said, man, covered the Daytona 500. Uh, I had fun covering that, too. So, there's a little bit of everything in that book, John. And the money, like you said, goes to charity. goes to uh, either uh, Ronald McDonald House or St. Jude's Children's Hospital. It's only four ninety nine right now as an e-book. <laughs> I was just I was just going to get to that, Bob, because I've only got a minute and a half left on the show here. Yeah. So for people that are listening uh, that are interested uh, in, in pulling down your ebook, uh, where do they go to get it? They go to Amazon Books, just Amazon.com Books, and look for a book called Writings of a Railbird. And you don't have to have a Kindle because you, you can read it without having a Kindle in your in your computer or phone. You know, just little, there's another thing they give you for free so you can read it. It's four ninety nine, like I said, and it's called Writings of a Railbird. It's under the ebook section of Amazon Books or Amazon.com. All right. Well, <clears throat> I could talk to this guy all night, but I'm telling you, folks, <laughs> I, I, I didn't get anything done at work today because I started picking up <laughs> these chapters, and it's great. Well, and, Bob, I, I'm telling you, if there's anything I can do to help you, you know, photographically well, or anything like that right. uh, about the, the horses and the people, as you know, we ran in similar circles, um, right. I, I'd be more than happy to do it. And, as you know, I've been well, taking pictures for quite a long time that um, complement some of these, and I, I really think you've got to get this into hardcover uh, or at I least paperback. Yeah. You know, I'm serious. I'm and serious. Reason, yeah. And the reason I did it was I want something for my grand. I have six grandkids. I want them to have a copy of what grandpa did for a living. So that's, that's what really motivated me to do it. Well, all I can say is it, it, if you ever decide to do it, I think you can get into stand-up comedy just working off this book, Bob. <laughs> well, thank you for the compliment. I'm not kidding. I've been sitting here laughing all day. Well, Bob, I got to go, man. Uh, we will all cross paths. Right, uh, we got some business we got to take care of, too, down the road. So you got it, buddy. All right, I'll be in touch. Soon, Thank you. Right, take Bob. care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Bob Roberts and his, uh, again, you can go to Amazon and, and pick it up. Uh, and uh, it, it is uh, Writings of a Railbird. And uh, it, it you will love this book if you like racing and just entertainment and sports I want to thank uh, eric mitchell for coming out with us too uh, to talk about the the breed and in the next week or so we're going to get back into some handicapping because we're finally going to get some more graded stakes races on the cards so for uh, my producer josh by gosh uh and our transportation coordinator lisa corrado and we uh i want to thank uh Let's see who else. Uh, let's see. It would be uh, well our our, our caterer uh, uh, Sal Manella. I want to thank him for bringing fine food here into the studio. And uh, again, I want to remind you to remind your friends that uh, if they want to have an entertaining time listening to the interview with Bob Roberts. Don't forget, all these are on podcasts, so you can pull them down. We keep the library up ad infinitum. All right, everybody, I'm John Engelhart. Remember, when you go to the races, bet with your head, not over it. Thanks for listening to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. We know the information from today's show will help you at the next post. Keep listening for more next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Sports Network.